This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to a new episode of the Film Studies Channel of New Books Network. My name is Santiago Fouth Hernández. I'm a professor of Hispanic Studies and Film Studies at the University of Durham in the UK. And I'm here today to talk to Professor James S. Williams about his recent book, Ethics and Aesthetics in Contemporary African Cinema, The Politics of Beauty, published in Bloomsbury in 2019. James S. Williams is Professor of Modern French Literature and Film at Royal Holloway, University of London, where he's also Director of the Centre for Visual Cultures. He is the author of, among others, The Erotics of Passage, Pleasure, Politics and Form, in the later work of Marguerite Dourat, published in St. Martin's Press in 1997, The Cinema of Joan Cocteau, published in Manchester University Press in 2006, John Cocteau, A Critical Life, published in Reaction Books in 2008. Space and Being in Contemporary French Cinema, published in Manchester in 2013. Encounters with Godard, Ethics, Aesthetics and Politics, published in Sunny Press in 2016. And Ethics and Aesthetics in Contemporary African Cinema, The Politics of Beauty, the book that we will be talking about today, and as I said before, published uh, recently in Bloomsbury. The book is uh, the winner of the 2020 R. Gapper Prize, awarded by the Association for French Studies in the UK and Ireland for Best Book in French Studies, published that year. His most recent book is the edited volume, Queer in the Migrant in Contemporary European Cinema, published in Routledge in 2020, and he's currently preparing a critical biography of Frank Fanon for reaction. Welcome, James, and thank you so much for your time for New Books Network uh, Film Studies Channel. We are looking forward to discussing your book, Ethics and Aesthetics in Contemporary African Cinema, The Politics of Beauty. Many congratulations also on your recent prize. And um, we're going to start the conversation. Before we start discussing the book in detail, um, it would be useful, I think, to get some background on how you became interested in African cinema and how did this project come to fruition? Well, thank you, Santi. I just want to say, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me to the New Books Network. Um, I'm very excited to be here talking with you. And and just you referred just a moment ago to um, a book that came out, an edited volume, Crewing the Migrant in Contemporary European Cinema, to which you were... Are one of the contributors, so it's very nice to be able to talk to you and to and to um, uh, discuss. So, how did this project come about? Um, well, I mean, I, I I am teaching within French and Francophone uh, studies, and film is part of that. So, in fact, I have been teaching African film for a while before this project started. Um, and I sort of had my kind of ideas about what African cinema was, sub-Saharan African cinema, um, anyway, um, based on the films of the 60s and 70s, so the first generation, really, of uh, African cinema. 
and and so it was kind of with Bamako this 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 extraordinary film from 2006 that things kind of suddenly took a whole new whole new meaning in terms of what African cinema um, was and might be and so I sort of dated the project from seeing Bamako um, in 2006 uh, a film that that uh, by Adairman Sisako, um, a Mauritanian-born uh, filmmaker, exiled in Paris and making films essentially in Mali. And this um, is um, set directly in the capital, Bamako. Um, it is all about Bamako, but also about Mali and Africa in general. Um, and, and it made me think that I'd have to kind of review... Um, all my preconceptions about African uh, cinema and in a sense start again and so that was a marker for me to kind of when I had time um, to kind of come back to it and and see what else you know this would lead me to the fact is it took a while for me to really get into this project because I had other um, projects on on, on the go and um, just before this started the African project I was working on a book uh, on Jean-Luc Godard. And, and I think now looking back on it, and you can always sort of reconstruct a narrative of, of how things kind of um, developed, but I think it was working on, on Godard and, and seeing all the pitfalls of um, Godard's work, dealing with, um, you know, the other alterity, black politics, um, black revolutionary politics of the 70s in particular, that made me think, actually, I've really got to go back to Bamako. And, and Bamako is, in, the, in, in a sense, a film that's more Godard than Godard. I mean, that, that's, that's really the impression it left uh, on me when I first saw it. It's doing so many extraordinary things for the first time. It gave me that sensation of seeing a Godard film for the first time. Um, but it's also doing things that Godard never could do um, and never wanted to do. And so, finally, I cut loose from Godard. <laughs> And went back to Bamako, and and then I, you know, spent probably four years altogether uh, researching uh, African cinema. Um, I, again, I have to emphasize it sub-Saharan. So what the book isn't is an engagement with North African cinema. Um, I mean, Africa obviously is, is a vast continent of different industries, and this is essentially uh, Western and Central African cinema. Um, and a lot of it francophone, but also lusophone, um, as well as anglophone. So it's important perhaps just to kind of make that distinction. Indeed. Thank you. Thank you so much for clarifying that and for uh, giving us an insight on how you became interested uh, on African cinema and how, how long you've been working um, on it and also uh, teaching it, as you say. Um, so the concept of beauty is, is clearly a central um, part of your argument. It, it comes up on the title very clearly, but also I noticed in, in most of the chapters, mm -hmm. of course, you talk about beauty, even the titles of the chapters mention uh, the word beauty. And you start the book by um, stating that, and I, and I quote, in African cinema, beauty is trouble. Um, and I, I wonder if you could explain why this is the case and how your book addresses this trouble. Yeah, well, <laughs> thank you. I mean, that is, um, that's the crux of it all, really. The fact that uh, for so long, and this was my preconception um, of African cinema, that, that it couldn't really engage with the aesthetic because it was all about the political, it was about engaged um, ideological critique. And that was very much 
the, the template of Usman Somben considered to be the father of um, African cinema. Um, so the films that he did in the 60s and 70s established a kind of sort of model whereby beauty always carried the burden of the political. I mean, it couldn't exist on its own. So, so in a kind of aesthetics where there's a suspicion of the surface, of the image itself, in fact, um, where one always had to go under the image, um, under the representation of um, uh, the story, the images, the characters, in order to get to the truth. Um, beauty was kind of demoted. Beauty was seen as kind of uh, a kind of hindrance, trouble. And, and it was seeing Bamako that I realized that African cinema had moved on because what Bamako does is it, it starts off in a very political way. I mean, it couldn't be more political. We have in the film a trial of um, the IMF um, and the World Bank for their uh, policies in Africa the so-called structural adjustment programs that have ruined so much of African civil life. And, and, and there's a kind of construction, a, a trial, a mock trial, if you like, of these two kind of world agencies in this courtyard in working class, um, Hamdalai in, um, in Bamako. So the political is there from the outset. But what he does, Sisako, is then use that as a kind of springboard to create a whole new set of questions and uh, lines of um, thought, of influence, of, of imagery. He calls them uh, parables. Um, and they take all sorts of different forms, including film within a film, flashback sequences, etc. Um, and it's very hard, therefore, to, to pin down what the political is after... Um, after it seeming so obvious. And that opens up the question of the aesthetic. So there are these images of beauty, the beauty, for example, of making clothes, fabric in this courtyard. We see it actually happening in kind of real time. There is a priority on the idea of beauty and of the materiality of beauty um, that people like Somben and many others that he inspired in the 60s and 70s and into the 80s um, didn't have time for, because as I said, they had this suspicion that the, the, the surface, however beautiful it was, and perhaps the more beautiful it was, the more suspicious we should be of it, um, was something that had to be scraped away to get rid of the wax, so-called, and get to the gold, and the gold being the truth, the truth of, I suppose, allegorical political meaning. And so Bamako starts off kind of having got to the political, to the political already. Um, we know, you know, who the baddies are, if you like, um, in, in the case of um, modern African uh, countries. It is the global entities like um, uh, the World Bank. It is neoliberalism rampant uh, in parts of Africa. And yet this film uses that, as I say, as a springboard to think about the aesthetic and the ethics of the aesthetic, which I'm sure is something we're going to come to shortly, um, because that's also in the title. Um, but I, if I can just say that, that it's that commitment to exploring um, the notion of something that exceeds the political or the strictly political that I see as a commitment also to the ethical. 
Indeed, and and one of the questions that I wanted to ask you was precisely um, the tension between the the ethics and the aesthetics in in African cinema. Which, of course, your your book, and I must say to our listeners, this is a, an extremely well documented and very analytical book, very original book, and also very lengthy. It's close to four hundred pages long. So one of the of the uh, you know the, as I said before, the the main idea is the idea of beauty, but related to it. The, this conflict between um, ethics and aesthetics, so perhaps a, a very complex uh, set of tensions that you discuss at length in your analysis. I just wonder if you could uh, uh, talk a little bit about, about this and, and perhaps summarize some of those tensions for us. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that, that um, is part of this sort of um, self-reflexive process I have in, in, in the book about um about beauty that having kind of invoked beauty um as something that i need to explore i also need to keep it moving and flowing because because the whole thing about african film aesthetics has been and this is where i talk about the field itself in quite extensive detail um in the introduction is that it has kind of frozen things it's fixed things um it's kind of carried on where some ben um sort of left off in a sense, the idea being to kind of freeze the notion of um, what beauty is as the negative to the political. And so one of the things I've tried to do in the book, and perhaps that may explain why it's so long, Santi, and, and I, <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it, you know, there's a close readings um, a lot of the time, but it is because I didn't want at all to, I wanted to avoid consciously um, freezing the idea of beauty. And what the beautiful is so beauty is there in the chapter headings um but i suppose i kind of try to think more about the aesthetic and um uh, i i talk about much more than kind of beauty with a big sort of capital b um the kind of aesthetic processes of what i call relational difference and i guess if there's any recurring theme in in the book aside from beauty it's relationality which is a necessarily kind of relative term, um, relative to the context that I'm uh, exploring. Um, so whether it's in the case of um, masculinity, whether in the case of violence or migration narratives or language or the Afropolis, this new kind of modern African city, I'm looking all the time for, 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 um, for the context, the, 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 the specifics of the context in which the aesthetic is playing out. And, 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 you know, if I'm saying that a commitment to the aesthetic is an ethical issue, um, for me, writing the book was all about trying to keep that um, uh, process as fluid, as open as possible. Um, and therefore it became for me necessarily, you know, a set of, a set of tensions always. I mean, I felt that this was, um, what one might call, I suppose, relational tensions, um, very different from the dialectical tensions though, that we were getting with Son Ben and, and how African film studies has presented African cinema. I've wanted to avoid binaries. I've wanted to avoid um, sort of dialectical um, uh, processes in order to feel out, and I use that term deliberately, to feel out 
kind of new um, new lines, new flows, new new, new associations um, of yeah of relational difference. Um, I hope that doesn't become a kind of fixed term either. But 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 that but that attention to difference is what I think um, I that was my strategy in the book. Um, yeah, I could say more about it if you like with with specific examples. Um, well, I think I mean I was actually talking about examples. One of the things that I that I wanted to to say is that your uh, case studies, the range of, of case studies, is uh, striking. Is is uh, there's a, a very wide range of case studies, and and still, by the way, when I when I mentioned before the length, I meant it as a positive thing. It's a, a very no, no. Example, uh, <laughs> full of information, but I'm, I have to say I'm very impressed with how you managed to keep the focus on the on the topic of of beauty and aesthetics and ethics. And dealing with such a, a wide range of, of of case studies, and I wondered uh, precisely, you know, with such a, an extensive filmography, some of which you know you mention as background, of course, but you you do focus on on quite a number of, of case studies. And I just wondered how you uh, went about selecting those those primary sources that were key for your analysis. And I also wondered whether those sources were easy to to access, or mm. did you have to do a lot of archival work or go to festivals? How do you, how do you select the materials? That's a very good question. Um, I mean, as it happens, you know, the films were coming out as I was researching. I mean, this is what's been so exciting about the project, um, that, that some of the key works by uh, Mohamed Saleh Haroun in particular, who's one of my key filmmakers, they were coming out almost once a year, once every two years, um, just as I was kind of getting into my stride. And, and that, of course, is quite daunting on a level because you're always catching up. But it also meant that I could see the films because they were commercially released. I mean, one of the problems about African cinema, especially of kind of the earlier periods, is they are hard to find. Um, I mean, with the exception of people like Saint-Ben and uh, Suleiman Sissé, for example, um, his famous film Yilen, Brightness, a lot of the films didn't get full international release, um, and you have to go to the Cinémathèque, normally in Paris, um, to see them. And, and, and that's also because if you were to go, as I did, to Senegal, naively thinking I would go to Dakar, the capital, and you know there would be all the films that I could see that I couldn't see anywhere else. And of course, that was a completely futile um, experience um, <laughs> because... I was told consistently, Monsieur, you have to go back to Paris. They don't keep archives in Senegal. I mean, Dakar was the capital of African cinema with Somben and, and his contemporaries. And yet what happened was very quickly, the material got lost. It was mislabeled, um, political um, turmoil took over and the commitment to archiving um, material uh, from the past um, was, was, was lost. So I had to see films then in Paris or, or London or elsewhere. Um, and I do, do discuss um, films of the earlier periods, of the early generations. It's not simply contemporary. The only way that I could deal with contemporary film is to also get a clear sense of, 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 of what they're doing that's so different. And I call this contemporary um, uh, cinema, millennial cinema, because it's essentially the last sort of 20 or so years. Um, but to go back to the question, I mean, I, I think I was lucky in the sense then that because I, I wanted to work on kind of current 
sub-Saharan African cinema, it was coming out. And even if I wasn't able to get a commercial copy, I could go to festivals in France and elsewhere um, to see these films. And there are some very good African uh, film festivals in the UK, in London and also in Glasgow. Um, so, you know, not all the material still is available commercially. And one film in particular um, that I spent a lot of time on um, called Life on Earth, La Vie sur Terre by Sisako, I had to see at the BFI in London. I mean, it's just a, not available anywhere else. Um, it's strictly archival uh, material, which is a huge shame. But, but, but I saw it perhaps as my mission also then to make sure that that material was, was discussed and part of my, um, you know, kind of survey of this contemporary uh, period. But that is a film from 1998, um, still virtually unavailable. That's uh, fascinating, James. Thank you so much for, for that clarification, because I must say your book uh, got me interested in, in quite a few of these films, and I, I looked them up, and I, I did come across some press uh, conferences on YouTube in some of the festivals that you mentioned, and also the, the, the London BFI Film Festival, um, and uh, I was just uh, quite intrigued as to how, how you, you could uh, get all the sources, where you say a lot of the recent films actually were exhibited uh, certainly in the UK, yeah. um, but through the festival circuit. So I was wondering, you know, it must have been quite, quite a lot of work to, to get hold of, of, the, of the material. So that's, uh, that's very interesting um, to hear. Um, your book is structured uh, thematically around issues such as aesthetics, violence, place and space, language and ideology, gender, in particular masculinities, migration, etc. Um, but you also identify three different faces of African cinema. And I wonder if you could share with us what they are and what are the differences between them? Yeah, well, um, I mean, I suppose I should see it in terms of, of, of generations. So if you talk about the early kind of post-colonial um, cinema of Saint-Ben and, and others of his generation in the 60s and 70s, we're looking at politically engaged cinema, um, essentially, where beauty is, is downgraded. Um, but then there's another sort of movement in the 80s um, called, well, not really a movement, a, a sort of, I mean, a label was given to these films, um, the label of calabash. Calabash is a, is a type of tree which, which is often used for um, creating sort of kitchen um, uh, cooking um, bowls and many other things too. Um, and... Uh, Return to, to, to the Source was about trying to, in a sense, go to the pre-colonial period to celebrate um, more the rural aspects of, of African history um, and to do that in ways which actually um, kind of approximated Western aesthetics. So some of these films, I just mentioned one, uh, Yilen, uh, Brightness by, by Sisse, um, you know, extraordinarily beautiful, uh, powerful um, film, hated by people like Son Ben because, yeah, it was far too beautiful for its own good. Um, but but it was also about trying to deal with rituals, customs, the whole notion of storytelling, oral storytelling, the griot uh, tradition, the, the griot being this sort of oral, oral storyteller um, in um, in Sub-Saharan Africa. And, and, you know, that lasted for a while, um, it kind of blew itself out, I think, um, because they were very expensive films to make. 
and and to be honest the only real audience was in you know europe or the states it wasn't in um uh, africa itself i mean some ben had this idea that you know he would take his films to the people and he would travel with his films and he was committed he would he was uh, you know a teacher if you like um that wasn't the case with calabash cinema um so then kind of things because of the economics um, of of Sub-Saharan Africa, things went quiet, I suppose, in the, in, in the 1990s. Um, so I'm Ben was still making films and some really important films. And and whatever I think about, you know, Son Ben, I mean, you know, I'm a huge admirer of his work, um, making films like Mulade, um, which is about female uh, circumcision, really extraordinary um, pieces of, of, of work that I do engage with in the, in the book. But it was really then at the turn of the millennium and 1998, uh, Life on Earth by uh, Sisoko, his first uh, main feature, that, that things changed. And this is then what I call millennial cinema. Um, these are the films really that I'm dealing with. The filmmakers um, like um, uh, Sisoko, like uh, Haroun, like Alan Gomis, um, like Fonta Nekra, sorry, Fonta Regina Nacro. Um, from uh, Burkina Faso and many others, they're all kind of doing, it would seem to me, new new types of film, um, which bring in also um, the biographical. Um, so you get these very kind of strange, interesting hybrids of um, biography, of drama, um, uh, and documentary. Um, and one could talk perhaps... And we could nuance that further by saying that people like Sisako and Haroun were part of the Arte um, kind of television sort of funding tradition. So Arte was funding very heavily into African cinema. Um, and, and one perhaps could criticise the nature of that funding and the types of films uh, that were being produced. But the fact is that these films, um, even though some of them may seem at times a little formulaic, a little bit too kind of... Um, centred on the biographical. This was new within African uh, filmmaking. And it was also responding to the new kind of um, issues in Africa. I mean, the new themes um, that were coming into, into play. So I'm talking then, you know, about the continuing aspects of, of um, neocolonialism, of civil war, but also things like you know, genocide, child, child soldiers, um, uh, the, the increasing presence of the Chinese in Africa, um, desertification increasingly. I mean, all these new themes um, are also dictating how films are made. Um, so, so what we're getting are new approaches responding to new themes. And that's what I would call millennial cinema. Uh, millennial post-colonial art cinema, perhaps to be more specific, because I don't deal with Nollywood in any detail at all. I'm aware of Nollywood all the time. You can't avoid Nollywood. Nollywood's so important. Um, but this is specifically really, you know, art, uh, post-colonial art cinema, um, underwritten to a large extent by Arte, but all the time, a sense that things are, are are changing and developing and evolving, and that that I think was really important to me. Um, that um, you know, I would wake up the next day and and find another sort of film d 
doing something very different around similar themes. I mean, that made the project very exciting for me. I don't know if that answers the question about the three Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it does. It does uh, very much so. Um, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions, James, about uh, documentary. And, and starting with, um, you know, could you tell us a little bit about what's the place of documentary in contemporary African cinema? And how has it evolved, uh, would you say, from a position of marginality to one, and I, and I quote you again, one of the most vibrant and dynamic strands of African cinema, as you write in the book? Yeah, I, I mean, perhaps I should just give the, the context for, for, for that uh, statement. I, I mean, people like Son Benz, who did, who had to do documentaries, you know, before they started making feature films, saw it as something that was too close to what had happened before in the colonial period, you know, kind of ethnographic documentaries. And anything that looked too naturalistic, you know, was again something to be suspicious of. Um, so it's taken a while for um, African filmmakers to kind of even get used to the notion of a documentary um, uh, approach. But what has happened with millennial cinema is that we are getting documentary within, as I say, this sort of this, this bio-doc drama kind of hybrid. So it's never straight documentary. I mean, that's that's the crucial thing. So when you have um, someone like Sisako in Life on Earth um, documenting what seems to be himself, um, he has a fictional persona in this film, but it's Sisako, we recognize him, um, going back to see his father uh, in Mali. You are aware that, that there's a documentary aspect to it, which is all the time being, um, to use the word, queered. I mean, it's always being sort of expanded and, um, and questioned at the same time. And, and uh, what, what I think distinguishes some of the documentaries, um, even, even in their most kind of what seem to be sort of straightforward uh, manifestation, say documentaries by Jean-Marie Tenot, a Cameroonian documentary filmmaker, they're never straight documentaries. I mean, they're, I mean, African documentary is never stable. There's always a sense of reconstruction um, going on. Um, and I think that, that what people like Sisako, Haroun uh, and Gomis do, or take it to kind of, you know, to, to, to the limit, they, they, they really stretch the notion of, of, um, of documentary by incorporating documentary-looking aspects into their work but all the time within something that is very kind of original and hybrid. So, so when I say that there is this sort of new commitment to documentary, it's documentary in a way that is a kind of floating genre. And I think it's, 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 it, it, it has very little bearing on, on the documentaries that people like um, Son Ben had to make in their early careers um, to get started. Documentary now is, is is part of a larger set of kind of aesthetic equations. Um, and there's one uh, in particular that I do discuss in, in the book, um, documentary. Well, it's been termed and presented and promoted as a documentary, uh, Mille Soleil, Literally a Thousand Suns by Matty Diop uh, from 2013, um, which, you know, it seems to be a documentary about her who is... Um, uh, French Senegalese um, director and also actress uh, going back from Paris to um, uh, Dakar to make a film about her uncle, her uncle who was the great film director um, 
Jibril Diop Mombetti. Um, and, and yet, even though the film seems so much like a documentary, a documentary of the everyday in Dakar, a documentary about um, Mombetti, it's also clearly fictionalized. And, and that, I have to say, is, is, is what really most interests me here. Um, that we're thinking about sort of documentary strategies within a work that is also clearly fictional um, and biographically informed. I mean, Mio Soleil touches all these different bases so beautifully, so poetically. Um, we even go to Alaska at one point in the film. Um, so, um, so that does raise the question then all the time of the status of, of genre, of the status of, of, um, of filmmaking. Um, and I think that is, um, what distinguishes a really African documentary that it's, that it's, it's so unlike anything else in world cinema. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Yes, still in, on the topic of documentary, um, James. Um, one of the, of the documentary films that you include in your book in the chapter of, on, on violence is um, Haroun's uh, uh, 2016 film, Italian Tragedy. And in his review for Variety, uh, James uh, Weisberg concludes, and I quote, that the film's classic unadorned visuals contribute to a sense of truth, furthered by straightforward editing, guaranteeing that each shot, um, uh, sorry, each story becomes a powerful testimony. That's the end of the quote. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say that your analysis of the film largely confirms this, uh, however, you also identify um, certain, a certain aesthetic approach in the film that influences the spectator, as it can happen sometimes in documentary films. Uh, so, for example, you describe the pace of the film as slow uh, and refer to Haroun's obsessive interest in, and I quote, what lies beyond the frame. Um, I, I wonder if you could elaborate on this a little bit and whether these two perceptions of the film are, in fact, uh, compatible. So actually building on a little bit on what you said before about staging the documentary, but in this case, is not staging as much as, you know, um, aesthetic concerns of the film that could impact the spectator. Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I, I, I think that this film by Haroon, A Tragedy and Tragedy, uh, which is sort of based around the, the trial taking place of uh, Hussein Habre, who was this sort of dictator in the 1980s in Chad, um, is, is Haroon at his most kind of direct, his most frontal, <laughs> And yet, you know, you're also aware of, of, of very ludic kind of uh, sequences. I mean, including presenting himself as the kind of auteur um, film director in his hotel room. Um, but also then you cut to semi-abstract views of clouds, of storms, of waves. I mean, there's something there which is all the time trying to kind of prevent anything that one might sort of get into a groove, a documentary groove with. Um, I mean, I, I think I think that's a very you know good uh, description the, the the review you just read out. Um, but it's only one aspect of that film. I mean, um, ultimately, I think that film is also asking us um, to question what the nature of testimony is in cinema. I mean, 
we do see, we hear some very disturbing testimony by those who survived Habre and, and who were there trying to get justice um, during this trial. Um, and um, typically we don't see sort of violence um, uh, in its most sort of graphic form. I mean, that's, that's perhaps a characteristic too of African cinema in general, just as we don't really get too much of the graphically sexual in African cinema. Um, but Harun gives us really for the first time in his work something that, that looks kind of, you know, direct and clear. And yet you're aware also of these opacities, of these questions that he, he, he sets in motion. For example, some of those interviews are clearly reconstructed. I mean, they're not happening in real time. Uh, some are but you're never quite sure exactly what the status is. And I think that is deliberate to kind of keep us questioning, to not kind of get into kind of snooze kind of control uh, when we think about documentary and there's another testimony and, you know, and on and on. He keeps kind of pulling the, the rug under our feet in terms of what we might expect of a film that is based around a trial. So I take that as actually quite a subversive film and also a poetic film. Um, very poetic. I mean, it's a beautiful, beautifully shot film. It's also very personal um, in that kind of millennial sense um, that, that I've just mentioned. Um, so it's is it a documentary? I'm not sure. I'm not sure it is, actually. Good, good point. Um, I mentioned space before as one of the of the key concerns and, and actually recurring f- uh, themes um, throughout your book. Um, and one of the chapters, in fact, focuses on migration and perhaps more generally the idea of, of the journey, which is also, I felt, uh, another major theme in your, in your book. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also borders that keep appearing in, in, in some of, this, of these films and in your, your commentary and, and your analysis. Um, I wonder if you could summarize some of the main narratives of migration that you have identified in, in the African films that you, that you study. And I was also thinking that perhaps you could refer to a film that you've been referring to already in this interview. Uh, and it's clearly a very important example uh, in your book, which is Isako's film Life on Earth, as, as one of the examples. But perhaps you, you prefer to focus on others. No, no, I'd be happy to talk about that film. I mean, uh, it's, it's an extraordinary piece of work. But, I mean, to come back to the uh, first part of the question, um, I mean, what I do do in um, the chapter of Migration Cinema, or Transmigration Cinema, as I prefer to call it, is, is try to present a sort of typology of migration cinema. And, 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 and therefore, you know, I, I kind of look at some of the kind of key, I suppose, subgenre, if we call migration cinema a genre, um, some of which focus on the journey itself, some of which often failed, most often failed, uh, journey of migration. Um, so big films uh, like The Pirogue, um, you know, big budget Senegalese films, um, dealing with the Perot, which is the boat that, that you know, is often doomed on the, on the high seas and never gets to Europe. But also um, grassroots documentaries dealing with um, um, the collective. It's always the collective um, journey. But I also look at films, another subgenre, which are dealing with the, the planning of the journey, the project, um, I look in particular at one film called Early One Morning, which is a film from um, Guinea, 
where we just sort of spend time with boys, you know, who dream of a better life and who are dreaming of getting onto, you know, a plane under under a plane's um, fuselage to try to escape again unsuccessful. Um, so there's that. There's also then the return, the aftermath, which is a particular uh, very strong uh, subgenre. So in particular, those those journeys that don't kind of um, lead to uh, Europe, most often Spain, then, you know, what happens when you return? And, and, and that's often, you know, um, the worst fate. Um, for those who suddenly find themselves ostracized. And, and that leads then to the question of sort of um, uh, retrospective analysis of the journey. Um, so I, I do kind of try to um, trace uh, different sorts, different sort of um, points of focus within the general story of migration. Um, but but one of the things that, that that was very important to me, which I discovered, was that it's not just about migration to to Europe; it's also migration internally within Africa. And, and in fact, there are more migrants traveling uh, within Africa, um, so we can call that, I suppose, intracontinental migration, than there are migrants trying to escape the continent to get to another. Um, and and some of those films are extremely personal um, and and often do follow, you know, characters who managed to actually make it to the land of their dreams, often Côte d'Ivoire, because that seems more economically um, uh, strong, with more potential for finding a job. Um, but the other questions, of course, that motivate this um, intracontinental migration are to do with desertification, to do with the, the loss of habitat, the inability now to, to grow crops. Um, so I try to cover these bases, um, which, which then kind of allow me to sort of um, variegate the notion of migration cinema. What, and this is the other part of your question, what distinguishes um, the film by Sisako, Life on Earth? is that uh, it's Sisako, who is this character called Draman, um, who is going back to uh, his father um, in Sokolo, this village in Mali. And I look in particular at um, the one of the early um, sequences, which I call a transborder sequence. And that is when we are with Sisako at the airport or in a mall. I think it's a mall in, in the airport. Anyway, he's buying... Um, uh, objects to take to Mali. And then we cut, it's a very dry cut, and we're suddenly zooming very slowly towards a baobab tree. Um, now, the baobab tree is something that I link with kind of, you know, the earlier moments in African cinema. Baobab tree, sort of the index, the symbol of uh, African tradition, um, the tree of life, a sacred tree of life in in um in African um, uh, thought, um, but also, you know, for me, the baobab tree has 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 um, uh, been the way in which um, theorists about African film can talk about kind of history, can talk about uh, roots, can talk about meaning, um, can talk about the gold in the wax. This this idea that that we have to get to something which is deep underneath, not on the surface. Toshima Gabriel, again, uh, the theorist of, 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 of that process. 
And, um, and, and yet what someone like Sisiko is doing is insisting on the beauty of the baobab tree. I mean, we are just allowed to enter into the canopy of this tree. Every time you would see a baobab tree in a film by Son Ben, it's to emphasize something like tradition or something like um, patriarchy, if I can put it like that. Suddenly, in this trans-border sequence, we are entering into this experience of beauty. It's an aesthetic moment where we're going forwards. And so, therefore, the notion of the border, a border sequence, a border between Paris and Sokolo, is also one which is aesthetic. It's an experience of the aesthetic in motion. We are in motion towards something. We don't get to, you know... We don't get to the, the, the trunk of the tree. It's, it remains a virtual process. But it's that idea then that the transborder uh, crossing between borders is also an aesthetic experience. I think, I think that is why life on Earth is so important to me. And, 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 and that kind of movement is played out and replayed in different ways, often textual, um, often dealing with you know, uh, writers like Aimé Césaire, like François Fanon, in the film and and um it's an extraordinary way in which the notion of migration becomes transmigration hmm. it's always in transformation so so you know there are films about migration within migration cinema there's also film a film uh, like this one which is always about transmigration it's always migrating out of itself and and i see that as a, a very poetic um transformative process Thank you so much. That's a, a, a crucial point, I think, in your book, you know, the aesthetics of also the borders and there's something that I, I found particularly interesting because it taught me a lot about how to look at, uh, uh, you know, to approach uh, migration and transnational uh, uh, cinema also from a, from a more aesthetic perspective and, you know, mm -hmm. the form uh, in which it appears in the film. Uh, so changing the subject a little bit uh, to an extent, uh, the chapter on masculinities was one that I, I found particularly interesting and appealing to me because of my of my own research interests on masculinities and, and the male body. Um, but um, I just want to talk a little bit about that chapter and uh, in particular your querying of Harun's work, which I found very persuasive. Um, but beyond that particular example, um, the, the chapter asks um, a lot of questions that perhaps audiences and critics uh, may have been too afraid to ask. Uh, you focus uh, in part on the silences and, and argue that the homoerotic is always implicitly present in the homosocial. Mm. Um, could you explain this further with uh, perhaps a couple of examples? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I focus on Haroon because his films, up to in fact his most recent film uh, released this year, have been really about boys and men. Um, you know, the female characters are sort of in the background. And his focus then is on uh, always um, brotherhood or men in close proximity, sons and fathers, or men who are kind of surrogate fathers in a country like Chad, where fathers, you know, um, are not so common, in fact, because of things like civil war. Um, and um, I, I, I kind of noticed that, that there's a kind of interest in getting as close and intimate as possible with, with male bodies in the frame in Haroon's work, there's no suggestion of, of, of any kind of sexual um, uh, play here, but there is a fascination and interest and investment in, in capturing and being close to the human, um, or the, the masculine form, the masculine body. 
And what I realized was that there's an invitation to the viewer, I think, um, conscious or unconscious, but I think very much conscious. And I'm not claiming at all that Arun is a, a gay filmmaker. I very much doubt it. Um, that doesn't interest me here particularly. And I'm not looking for, you know, gay positive images as such, because I'm not going to find them. Um, you know, so, so, so what's going on here? And I think it's this idea that, that what he's doing is inviting the viewer to, to, to see something um, which is not seen elsewhere, which, which is a kind of um, a male intimacy which is at play within narratives that are decidedly not homosexual. Um, but there's always this notion that for the viewer, they might be. So for example, um, in the case of a film like A Screaming Man, and on Cri Cri uh, is the French um, uh, title, the opening sequence is of two men in a swimming pool. And it, it looks like they're on holiday having fun, an older man and a, and a, and a younger man. And you're allowed to think that actually there's something quite erotic going on here, especially the way he films it under underwater. I mean, it's it's incredibly seductive. Um, but then the narrative quickly, you know, installs itself. This is father and son, and they have issues and, and tensions. But what's interesting about that film is that you are still invited to see the moments of their proximity together in a kind of homoerotic way. It's not as though suddenly, you know, now we move to kind of father and son and everything is, is kind of straight and, and clear again. On the contrary, what Harun wants to do is to bring them together at times where they could be lovers, potentially. Uh, and, and that happens also in a film like Darat. And, and in fact, the, the cover of the book is from uh, Darat, which means dry season, which is about, you know, the effects of civil war and uh the this young man a team who was trying to hunt down his father's killer um and and and, and the image on the front cover is 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 pretty violent a gun placed to uh, the guy's head nasara who did kill his father it's also a very very beautiful image of an older man um and um and, and i and i think at times that in that film there's a suggestion that underneath the layers of um, kind of animosity between them. The fact is they spend so much time together in the frame that there is this physical um, uh, feeling for each other. And, and in fact, Nasser, the older guy, says, you, you know, um, when Atim leaves suddenly um, and he's not sure who Atim is, um, you know, is, is he in fact the son of the, the man he killed? But but, he's, but but the way that he he kind of um, explains his emotion is you know you have abandoned me you've left me almost like a, a kind of someone who's in love with with this younger man and there are other instances in the film where where young men get together suddenly on the street which again out of context could be a very different sort of film now what is Haroon doing with that and that's what I try to kind of explore it's, it's an intimacy that is is in the shadows if you like. Um, but it's there, and it's and it's very sensuous, and and I think erotic. So there's an erotic kind of intimacy within these very straight sort of homosocial um, uh, narratives, but they're there, <laughs> and 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 I think they should be celebrated. Um, and I and I was aware that no one had done that sort of work before, had shown their interest, even the more kind of, how can I put this, the more right on 
uh, more advanced um, African film critics, and I could name names, but I won't, um, you know, who dismiss these male relationships as as kind of irrelevant to the to the you know the core of the plot, which is about violence, it's about retribution, it's about you know finding new archives for sort of um, the, the civil war and documenting that. Yeah, that's all going on for sure in direct. But there's also these other moments which are random, which are, are quite free, um, which linger. There are men lingering with each other. And, and I do also trace this process back to um, uh, the work of another filmmaker who was making films at the same time as Somben in the 1970s called Monbetti, Diop Monbetti, who I mentioned in the case of Mati Diop. Because he also, in a film like Tukibuki, in the mid seventies was, was daring to kind of talk about, in fact, explicit um, kind of queerness and campness, such a rare thing in, in African film, more possible in Nollywood as it happens. Um, but I think that those traces you're still getting in these, in the shadows of Haroon's work. That's really, really important and pioneering work, James. And I, I like to congratulate you, you know, on the book as a whole, but I have to say that that chapter in particular, uh, to me, is is, is crucial and, and very very important work. Um, so actually, as, as a follow up to that, but just very briefly, um, in the introduction to the recent book on uh, queer cinema in the world, the editors uh, refer to third cinema and and say that you know uh, third cinema films are queer both in terms of their political value to unsettle mainstream notions of history and politics mm. but also because of the non-conventional ways of filmmaking and and in the chapter um, you actually mention um, third cinema precisely in terms of technique i i don't know if you agree with uh, with that statement that i just uh, mentioned or or not well, I think I think there is something there which I do agree with. I mean, I, I mean, on one level, I, I think that's a kind of a deliberately provocative statement from from the writers, um, and 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 it could be argued that they're kind of overgilding that lily a little bit. Um, you know, third cinema, cinema novo in particular, is is incredibly straight. Um, but are you saying that on the level of form, it's, it's, you know, yes, it's always querying, it's always hybridizing, it's, it's dismantling, it's imperfect, it's deliberately imperfect. I mean, that's what Son Ben is doing in his very early work in a film like Halla, The Curse from 74. Um, you could talk about the form there as, as, as being subversive and, and querying, therefore, um, uh, narrative forms. But also in, in a film like Halla, you get, and it's just for a second, but you get it. Um, you know, what is a very camp, effeminate character, a waiter in one of the scenes, uh, which I mentioned briefly. Um, I mean, the thing about Son Ben, and, uh, you know, everything seems to come back to Son Ben. You, you almost can't avoid it because his work is so, so strong, um, because he represents third cinema brilliantly in the African context. Um but, but even in a film like Mandabi then, Mandabi, um, you know, which is his first film in Wolof, um, not in French, it's, this, it's the key moment for him where he can make a film on his own terms completely in his own language. And, and I talk, uh, you know, about the opening sequence and, and going down the Bay of Abtree, and it all feels as though, you know, this is the theme of nationhood, it's the theme of progress, this is kind of the community, and it's all very kind of, um, well, patriarchal. Um, uh, 
But, you know, you go to the next sequence and, and suddenly you're aware that what seemed to be something very straightforward, um, the way characters are brought together in these establishing shots, is full of holes and gaps. And I think there's something there that one could really open up. I mean, I, I think that, I mean, this is the third cinema technique, therefore, always to kind of, you know, destabilize kind of efficient, um, perfect, consumable, digestible um, filmmaking. And, and, and what he does, Sonben, so brilliantly is to kind of confound those sort of smooth edges. And, and, and I think that, that, you know, you're suddenly aware in, I think it's the second sequence after the, the Baobab um, um, has landed and we go into the barbershop outside, you're suddenly aware that, that there are gaps in, in, in the narrative. What seem to be like three people is two people, or is it one person? And you're thinking, yeah, so, so the men here, which are, you know, are all lined up to get their hair cut, um, that's all very kind of, you know, straight and clear. But so Ben is already complicating it. And I think if I had time, you know, um, perhaps it's another book. I mean, I'd actually want to queer some Ben or rather show how some Ben queers himself. I'm not sure that's the case, though, to be honest, with 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 every um, African third cinema uh, exponent with some Ben, um, because you're dealing with someone who is so controlled in what he's doing. When you find these gaps and openings that haven't really been acknowledged, you really want to go into them and open them up. Mm. Um, maybe I will, I don't know. <laughs> well, we'd certainly encourage you to, to do so. Uh, we are getting to the end of the interview, James, uh, which has been incredibly uh, rich and, and fascinating. And certainly I think it will encourage a lot of, uh, of our listeners to, to, um, to get, you know, to read your book. Um, but uh, before we go, there's a couple of more questions I'd like to ask you. And uh, first of all, um, Regarding the, the most recent case study, I, I think, that you cover in your book, which you also uh, choose as um, a case study to illustrate some of the uh, recent and perhaps new directions in African cinema, which is Gomi's uh, Felicite from uh, 2017. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if you could, uh, you know, to, to finish the discussion on this book before we move on to, to the very final question, if you could tell us a little bit about that film and how it illustrates these new directions or, uh, or recent directions of African cinema. Yeah. Um, I mean, Gomis is someone that I do follow in the book, um, including a film called Tay Today, which is set in Dakar. Um, so he does like to sort of go into the city um, to make his films, and he is French, Senegalese. This is a film that made in Kinshasa, not his native habitat. And it's, a, it's an extraordinary film about um, uh, a mother trying to bring up um, a, a boy with, with problems and with her lover of the time. Um, and it's set in this kind of really present, ultra-present Kinshasa. I mean, we're we just exposed to kind of the noise, the power of the Afropolis. I mean, it's extraordinary for that. But also what's interesting is, is, is how hybrid it is. I, I think it's probably the most hybrid film that I discuss, um, um, and it had just come out as I was finishing the book. I wanted it in the in the final conclusion, because it seems to me to be sort of gesturing towards new frontiers of hybridity, if you like. Um, and and you know, for, just sort of to talk about some of the aspects here. I, I mean, this is this is a, a film 
with Congotronics, the kind of the very kind of big beats of Congotronics, um, you know, propelling it forward. But there's also um, uh, several sequences where we're seeing the only black symphony in, in Africa playing a work by uh, Abba Pert, for example, you know, a kind of avant-garde classical, modern classical um, artist. Um, and, we're, and we're getting all sorts of different sort of styles of film, including um, um, Super 8 and 60 millimeter. I mean, what he wants to do here is to just make this film as, as fresh, as, as eclectic, as all-encompassing as possible, it seems to me. Um, and that's the film. And then what's even more interesting is, is that once the film had been made, he then made it into a kind of web experience. So there is a website called Around Felicité, which is, is a chance then for people to engage with the film. And, and directors, uh, including, for example, Matty Diop, who I just mentioned, you know, has, has sent in um, some filmmaking of our own inspired by the film Felicité. Uh, and, and composers, artists, writers, um, the general public, if you, if you like, um, are invited to be part of this kind of extension of the film on this new platform. And, and it seemed to me that, that this was a way in which Gomis could kind of reinvent the art film, the post-colonial art film. This is the, the genre then that is so distinct from Nollywood. And, and for so long, the people who, who hold the purse strings of um, African art cinema um, in, in, um, uh, in Africa, and there's this regular festival called Fespaco, uh, uh, which takes place in uh, Burkina Faso, you know, had never wanted to think about Nollywood. I mean, that was, that was almost too vulgar. That was, that, was, that was an industry. That was video. But what Gomis has done it seems to me is is um, kind of open up the art um, film um, as as a medium to engage with other types of platform. I'm not saying this is a Nollywood film at all. I'm not saying that, but it's crossing so many frontiers on a formal level to open it up to new types of audience, new types of crossover. Um, it's on its own terms, a kind of transporter zone, once it hits um, that, that website, you're getting a sense of, of this kind of um, ongoing film. Um, and it's still live. And I, and I think that that is a way in which um, the African art film, if you like, um, is, is perhaps able to see new, new beginnings. Um, and not be set in the kind of, you know, hour and a half, two hour format. It's, it's a whole way of looking at film uh, in, 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 I think, um, an experimental way by considering other platforms. Uh, you know, maybe Festbaco will become um, more alive to that. As it happens, the film got the best award at Festbaco for that year. So it seems to me they recognised importance of it but Fesbeko is very conservative and like so much of African film criticism which is conservative you know there'll be things and a lot of time still to happen before I think a work like Felicite can generate other experimental films of this type which are crossing across different platforms but that is the future it seems to me very much. Indeed, and you know the the uh, the, uh, the element of, of the multimedia experience of this film. I, I thought it was the perfect way to end the book and bring it to the present and certainly to the to the future. 
I'm talking about the present and future, James. I wonder if we could finish by uh, hearing a little bit about your latest project. What are you working on at the moment? What are you planning to to publish in in the near future? Well, you mentioned uh, the book on uh, Fanon, um, and that is uh, still being written. Uh, I hope to complete that very soon. And and I may, I'm under discussions uh, right now um, to do a BFI film classic, in fact, on a film um, by Saint-Ben, Hallett, that I mentioned. Um, so that would be, you know, a small project, but I'm thinking that that um, would be a good way, perhaps, of following up some of the things I've just been saying about Saint-Ben and Third Cinema. Um, but, but another aspect of my work has been very much on British black cinema, um, and I've written on Small Acts by Steve McQueen, um, and that, for me, would be something I want to work more on. I have worked on um, sort of African-American black cinema too, and I see that as very much where I'm going, um, sort of longer term. I mean, how that fits into, you know, my role as a teacher and researcher in French francophone film We'll see when I, you know, well, when I get there. But that is that's very much part of my kind of long term interests in in Black British cinema and African American television. Thank you, thank you so much for sharing uh, that with us, uh, James, and also for all the time you devoted to talking to New Books Network, the Film Studies Channel. Uh, the conversation has been fascinated, fascinating. You have added a lot of information about the book. And uh, certainly, uh, for me, one of the of the uh, signs that a, that a, that a film studies book is a good book is when it makes you interested in watching the films, and uh, you know, not only engage with the films critically, uh, but certainly not treating the films just as as objects of a study, but actually writing so passionately about them. And that passion, I think, is very clear as well in the way you talk about the films, and yet from a very critical perspective. So, you know, it's, it's a balance that sometimes is difficult to find. And I think your book certainly achieves. Well, thank you, Santi. Thank you very much. Yes. Many, many congratulations on the book and on the award, very well-deserved uh, recent award. And I'd just like to remind everyone who is listening that uh, James uh, S. Williams's book, Ethics and Aesthetics in Contemporary African Cinema, The Politics of Beauty, um, first published in Bloomsbury in 2019, is now available on hardback, paperback, and ebook formats. Um, once again, thank you so much, James, for your time. Uh, my name is Santiago Fouth Hernández. I work at the University of Durham. And um, may I take this opportunity to encourage uh, those of you who are listening to please subscribe to the Film Studies channel of the New Books Network. And if you speak Spanish, Catalan, Euskera or Galician, you may be interested in another channel in New Books Network in Espanol, Estudios Ibéricos, a channel that I have the pleasure to um, coordinate with my colleague from the University of Vienna, Esther Jimeno Ugalde, and which is a collaboration between New Books Network in Espanol and uh, a different project that we have called Play Ibericos, where we present uh, and launch books uh, published in those languages um, on YouTube and also in a podcast. Um, thank you so much again, one final time to James, and uh, please subscribe uh, to New Books Network Film Studies. Thank you.